Last week, we talked about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Satan, who is not a cartoon character, but a real being who seeks to destroy the work of God and bring chaos and destruction to the lives of people. Jesus doesn't reach for what is being offered to him, not the power, not the nourishment, not the opportunity to show that God loves him. Vulnerable though he was to this attack, Jesus withstands the temptations by standing firm in the truth of Scripture that is a model for all of us when we are targeted by evil in our lives. Now, Jesus goes straight from the wilderness back to his childhood home in Galilee, offering a teaching during a worship service, a surprising commission ensues. In other words, a lot of drama. Although this is a story we may know, I invite us to try and imagine hearing it for the first time or with different ears. And to help us, I want to do today something that our cinematic friends uh, do called uh, freeze frames. So let's think about the narrative of Jesus as a film running in our living room or our church, I suppose. And we're going to stop in four places along the way with the purpose of drawing attention to specific elements of the scene. In film editing, freeze frames are constantly used for the last shot of a movie to capture a specific moment in time, or they're used to stop in the middle of action or to add a funny moment to the drama. While it looks like a static picture, what they're doing is repeating one frame over and over again in order for it to look like the action has stopped. Alfred Hitchcock is the first person who did this in a random film called Champagne. It was a silent film in 1928. So here we go in a Hitchcockian kind of way, looking at Jesus. That's it. This is the very first recorded teaching of Jesus in Luke. So we want to pay attention to how Jesus is communicating two simple things. He came to Nazareth to say two simple things. One, he is the Messiah that is promised from a long time ago to bring hope and freedom in the name of God. And two, that these promises are now for all people. That's it. That was his message. So let's see what happens. Freeze frame one, verses 14 through 19. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus leaves the desert filled with the power of the spirit. Luke keeps telling us in these first few chapters he emphasizes how Jesus is full of the abiding presence of God. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit at baptism, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and now is filled with the Spirit as he returns to Galilee. 
And in kind of a nod to his 12-year-old self, Jesus is teaching in the synagogues to the praise of everyone. People were loving his teaching and were talking about it amongst themselves. Now, Nazareth was not a very big place. A few things that we might want to notice about Nazareth. Jesus' hometown is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's kind of off the beaten path, even for someone from the region. John records in his gospel that when Nathanael was wondering about this unknown rabbi named Jesus, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was not a go-to destination. And archaeological excavations have confirmed that it was a small agricultural out-of-the-way village of roughly two to 500 people. A few years ago, they found a house located on the slope of a hill from around the time that Jesus lived. And in it, they found pottery uh, made of clay and chalk. No glassware, no fine china. It was thought that maybe there were 50 houses there on a footprint of about four acres, populated by people of modest means. And the reason it isn't mentioned is because it was too small and too insignificant. This is where Jesus came from, and it is where Jesus goes today. So here is Jesus on the Sabbath coming to teach. They must have been eager to hear him since people were buzzing about what a great preacher had come from their own small town. I love how Luke tells us that it was the custom of Jesus to be in worship every week. And as I read that, I thought, honor the Lord your God. It just rang in my ears. Going to church is an expectation of family or culture, but God expects, God expects those who love him from a heart that is devoted to him that we would be in worship. One thing we might find interesting is how Jesus is not exhausted. He's not overly spent from his time in the wilderness or from the teaching he's been doing. This seems counterintuitive. He is spiritually full and ready to go. That's something for us to be attentive to in our lives. That we can physically be tired, but our souls can be alive and alert to the Spirit of God. This week, uh, for my doctoral cohort, uh, we read uh, Restless Devices, our own Dr. Felicia Song's book. Please read this book. Please, please read it. It's not just about the danger of technology, although she has a lot of research about that, but it's also a guide for how we can pay attention to the formation of our souls. And one really inspired idea she talks about is the idea of liturgy, the practices that we engage in as people. We often think about liturgy as being holy habits, but we don't always think about how our secular habits also can be liturgical. And in this case, Felicia is pointing out how often we check our phones because we're bored or distracted, or we text one another instead of actually engaging with one another. How social media has become a poor substitute for actually gathering together or talking in groups. See, those are liturgies. Those are habits that don't fill our souls. Rather, they're causing real damage. They're breaking connection with ourselves and God and with others. But it's only when we are aware of what our habits are 
and intentional about them that we can make choices where our souls can truly be free and grow in the likeness of Christ. So we always want to ask ourselves, do our habits, be they digital or otherwise, make us more alive in God? Or do they deaden our souls? Like we discussed last week, we are susceptible. We are susceptible to being dragged down by the world. We are called to be alert and alive in the spirit. This is how Jesus goes into worship, alert and alive in the spirit. Here we see Jesus is given a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He chooses which words to read. Like a good preacher who has discerned from the spirit what the people are meant to hear, Jesus recites a beautiful passage we know as chapter 61 which announces the hope of God's divine presence and action in the world. We read Isaiah for a year. We know and remember the first audience of exiles and how every subsequent generation after them longed for God, longed for the one who would come and redeem them and save them. And here Jesus is reading about the anointed one who would bring healing and forgiveness in a new way. That God's mission is to liberate the poor, to those who are bound in captivity, to help the blind to see, to free those who are oppressed, those who need to know the Lord's favor. This is all of us. Isaiah 61 is a picture of a renewed world that begins with those who have been lacking now being able to receive what they most need which is justice and restoration. And then 61 ends in a beautiful garden. It's a beautiful picture of God's abundance. And when we read these words, Jesus is communicating to those who know him best, the dear people who raised him up, that he is the Messiah. That's what anointed one means in Hebrew. It means the Messiah. Jesus is announcing, I am here and I'm going to reverse everything that is wrong and bring God's kingdom to earth. So before we move on to how it all goes awry, we need to think about how honoring it was for Jesus to come to Nazareth and to give them this news first. He was attempting to offer them the chance to be part of what God was doing before he went further away. The messianic age is beginning. What hope this is for everyday people just like them and for the world. He was allowing them to be eyewitnesses of God's plan being fulfilled in their presence. Isaiah 61 is one we often talk about in our congregation, but we want to think about how Jesus' inaugural mission as the work that the church is meant to carry on. So when we read these words, we think, what do these words of freedom mean for the church today? Especially in Lent, these are important words for us to wrestle with and to speak to the Spirit about. God's salvation, God's very real action in the world, God's focus on those who lack basic needs. God's focus on those who are enslaved in some way. If you follow Jesus, this is what your life is meant to be as well. Christians are meant to keep doing what Jesus began as a way of worshiping him and, a way, and as a way of loving others. 
but the landscape of today's culture and even pockets of the church is alarmingly condemning and vicious. People are lying and they're self-centered. Those led by the Spirit, those who read these words and say, Jesus, this was what you were about, among other things, and we want to be about these things too, to bring God's truth and love and justice as we work for the dignity of all people. Freeze frame number two, verse 20 through 22. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Here is a juxtaposition that people are honestly grappling with. This kid who grew up among them. If Jake read something to us and claimed to have God's special revelation, some of us might say, aren't you the kid that played the drums at Christmas when you were two? Didn't you run around here with all the other kids? Didn't we see you have a ponytail in college? <laughs> you see, people in the congregation questioned how this could be true. You're the anointed one? You think you're the Messiah? You're Joseph's son. That, that, can, that does not square with what we think. You see, there's something about knowing someone that makes us question their validity to do something important. Why is a prophet without honor in their own home? Competition? Jealousy? Familiarity? There's a dissonance here. Because they're drawn to his message, but they're not open to him. It's really interesting to think about why they couldn't see Jesus as the Messiah. Where did they think he was supposed to come from? Even Isaiah said that the, the, the servant would be born among them. Did they think he would just appear one day out of nowhere? One tragedy here is how these people raised him up. They cared for him. They taught him. They corrected him and encouraged him. But they reject him on the grounds that they, he cannot be the one sent from God. But yet they are amazed. Look at what it says. They were amazed at his words, gracious words. They came out of his mouth. But they fought the truth because they only saw him in a certain way. In the original language, gracious words means that he was conveying the good news of God's grace. They wanted that. Part of them were like, yeah, yeah. But then they dismissed him, and so then they dismissed the words. I wonder, I wonder sometimes about those of us who have been in church a long time, that somehow we can be drawn to the message, but somehow separate it from Jesus. Stop honoring Jesus in some way. Sometimes people find a more enlightened way or a better way, they think, than by living close to Jesus. The prophet sometimes becomes without honor in his own home. I'm not talking about rejecting cultural ways of living out the faith. I'm talking about not honoring Jesus because we have become too familiar with him and are disenchanted 
by being faithful to him. We have to keep the message and the messenger always together. Freeze frame three. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here in your own hometown the things we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus knows how they see him. He knows how they will hear his teaching, but it has to be said. He has to tell them that the good news that he is bringing as the anointed one, as the Messiah, is not just for them. It's not just for the Jewish people. It is for everyone. But instead of saying it that way, Jesus illustrates two popular prophets who in a time of crisis did not go to God's people with healing and provision that was needed, but instead went to foreigners. And Jesus is saying these foreigners had their hearts open. That's why God did that. Because these will not receive Jesus, and because they will demand to see proof, Jesus isn't even going to try. He knows their hearts. Physician, heal thou thyself can be interpreted in a few ways. He's articulating what he knows they are thinking. Are you going to give us direction that you yourself aren't going to take, Jesus? Maybe before you give us a solution, you should apply it to yourself. You say you are the anointed one. Why don't you prove it? But by saying what he did, Jesus is trying to point out, it's not your healthy skepticism that is keeping you from hearing. It's the insincerity and hardness of your hearts. We might just think for a second what it took for Jesus to do this. Knowing the consequences would be hard. And for those of us who are more harmonious in nature, we might wonder, Jesus, could you have been a little softer in your approach? Others of us might wonder why he bothered at all. Shake the dust off your feet, Jesus. Don't even go there. But maybe he wanted to foreshadow the future. Maybe he wanted to give them a chance. Maybe he was just being obedient. Maybe he knew he was kind of running out of time in the very beginning. You see, those who proclaim God's truth have to follow God's lead and not just preach their own agenda. They're not supposed to bend to the will or the expectations of the people. This is hard to do. It would be less painful to just preach words that were simple and easy and God loves you. Words that don't challenge anyone. But the way of Jesus is different. Freeze frame four. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. To me, these might be some of the saddest words in Scripture. Jesus faces extreme opposition from the devil in the wilderness, the literal devil 
And then he goes home where he might expect a welcome where he might expect that they would believe him and honor him and embrace him. Instead, he went from one unsafe place to another. Some of us understand that. There's so much that we can say about this. Jesus was filled with the Spirit, yet his words filled the people with rage. All they heard was their anger. Yet anger is just a surface emotion. The genesis of anger is different. They disrespected. Did they feel fearful? Were they stubborn? Did they think Jesus was a heretic? Did they expect it differently? Cheryl and Denny have been teaching their class again about how we all need to learn and continue working on responding instead of reacting. Responding comes from a place of being curious and having an open mind. But instead of stopping to think about what Jesus is teaching, the people of Nazareth take what Jesus is saying as a great insult. They are so offended. How dare you? How dare you? You can't come in here and say that. You have to leave. We're going to run you out just in case you don't know where the door is. It's ironic that Jesus tells them how God will not act among them because of their unbelief, and then they react by absolutely not hearing him. Is he, are they ticked off because he's just a kid? Or are they ticked off because the good news is for all people? When we get so angry, we have to stop. We have to stop and try and figure out why we are so mad. We teach children not to harm one another in their anger, but sometimes we ignore that for us, feeling like it is our right to express our anger. Even if we think a person is dishonoring God, we have to take things down a notch because threatening physical harm, verbally abusing someone is never of God. Never, 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 never of God. And then we think, did not one person have wisdom to stand up and speak and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's have a reasonable conversation. Like that guy with Paul that was like, listen, if this is from God, then God's going to do what God's going to do. And if it's not, don't worry about it. They're going to run their beloved son off a cliff. You see, we expel things away from us that we don't want to hear sometimes in a violent way. When Jesus and the truth he actively speaks is thrown out of a congregation, it's a sad day. And one thing that we have to see at the very beginning of Luke is that Jesus is not just gentle, meek, and mild. We are going to see many facets of Jesus' character and the way that he expresses God's truth. And the Lord right here is claiming to be the anointed one, is challenging the status quo, is riling people up in his first sermon and shaking the dust off of his feet. Because Jesus is God. He is not controlled by a broken, insecure humanity. At his baptism, the father said, this is my son. Listen, listen to him. Somehow, Jesus miraculously escapes them. This is a reminder that we cannot live and die by the praise and the criticism of people. If we do, we will end up frazzled, out of alignment with God, resentful and anxious. 
So we've been given much to think about this morning. Let's take time to examine our hearts and our minds, to be very open to what Jesus, who is here, is saying to us at this time of our lives. Let our hearts be open. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.